When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I thought it was really interesting because Polite talked in really specific detail in some instances about what you should look for as a compliance officer to gain windows into the Justice Department's thinking, where he specifically was talking about cases such as Balfour Beatty, such as Nat West, such as Stericycle. And he was talking about certain outcomes and how come these companies did this and these other companies got that. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, where with my co-host, Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance-related topic. Today, we take a deep dive into the Kenneth Polite speech, which was recently delivered at Compliance Week 2022. Every compliance professional needs to uh, take a look at this speech and study it. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Welcome back, Matt. Hello, Tom. Matt, as you know, last week, uh, Kenneth Polite, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, spoke at Compliance Week. And Compliance Week was um, good enough to transcribe his remarks and make those available. And you wrote a blog post on them. Uh, I happened to be at the speech heard a lot of interesting things and initiatives from the DOJ, but what uh, maybe you could set the stage for us. Uh, yeah, sure. So this was a speech well worth, uh, if you can get your hands on a copy of it. Uh, and first, let me just tisk tisk the Justice Department that they have not published a text of this speech, which I think is a, a bit much. Come on, DOJ, if you are viewers here, you really should get a copy of that speech from Mr. Polite and post it. I thought it was really interesting because Polite talked in really specific detail in some instances about what you should look for as a compliance officer to gain windows into the Justice Department's thinking, where he specifically was talking about cases such as Balfour Beatty, such as Nat West, such as Stericycle. And he was talking about certain outcomes and how come these companies did this and these other companies got that. And, you know, he was literally telling compliance officers what to do. Go look at these documents. We settled these cases this way because these companies did do this, but they failed on that. And therefore, we got this sort of outcome. Um, it's a very good, instructive way for other compliance officers, I think, to try and get a sense of how the department will approach FCPA cases and presumably other corporate corruption cases as well. Uh, but you get a feel for 
what the department is looking for for an effective compliance program, what you do need to be able to do or demonstrate if you want to try and achieve these favorable outcomes as opposed to some other unfavorable outcomes. And uh, it was really a refreshing bit of precision in what the Justice Department is talking about with compliance programs. I agree with that, Matt. Uh, he had a lot of information in there. Uh, at one point, he said, now, I'm not going to tell you how to run your program. I'm going to tell you how we analyze it. Yeah. And, uh, and then he proceeded to. I was really intrigued with the Jardine um, declination because he made clear that or, or one of the key reasons, at least in his mind, was that the company detected the violation. Of course, they self-disclosed and then remediated. But it was that early detection system. Uh, his remarks seemed to indicate that it was an internal whistleblower. I'm not sure if, if we saw that in the declination information. But he really focused on having a robust speak-up culture in place that allowed people to report either wrongdoing or violations of company policy. Well, I think that makes sense if you think about it. Um, uh, internal whistleblowers who feel comfortable speaking up because they know the company's going to act on it and do something, and then the company actually does. And in um, that case there, they went, the Jardine case, they went and they self-reported and all of this other stuff and remedial action that we talk about a lot. But all of it means that, yes, the company is encouraging a speak-up culture and taking the spirit of ethics and compliance seriously, which is a bit of a vague concept, but we all know it when we see it. And apparently the Justice Department and Assistant AG Polite do too, um, because they wound up getting a very favorable settlement comparing to other resolutions that you might get if you're in FCPA trouble. But I would say that is probably different than transactional analysis or audits or close documentation requirements where you catch people, you, the compliance program. This is more about the corporate culture is, okay, I see this sketchy thing over here that somebody's doing. I'm going to talk about it and bring it to management's attention, and they're going to act on it. That's the, the culture of compliance we all like to talk about and we all say is so important and then look at the result. And the result was quite favorable. I think that a lot of people would like a result like that compared to some other FCPA resolutions we've seen. It's interesting you saw that, Matt, because in another place in his remarks, he specifically talked about data and data analytics. And I got the distinct sense that he wants <laughs> companies to data mine more closely. And if they data mine and through that data mining, they detect uh, some uh, missteps, uh, illegal payments, or just violation of company policies, that that type of detection system would be equally rewarded if it turned out it was a violation and if there was a self-disclosure and all the other things that the FCPA corporate enforcement policy required. I, I mean, certainly that's true that you should also be doing data analytics, but all things being equal, would you, a compliance officer, rather have employees speaking up when they see misconduct or a really good data analytics program? I would argue that the more employees speaking up is more reflective of that sort of touchy-feely idea, but still very important that you have a culture that embraces doing the right thing, as opposed to analyzing every single action to identify the right thing. They're different, or identify the wrong thing, I suppose. They're, they're different sorts of skill sets a corporation needs for effective ethics and compliance. But I mean, look, I, I know which one I would rather have if I were in charge. 
Well, you have been in charge before, so you get to say <laughs> what you wanted. But um, I was really also intrigued by both his remarks and your analysis because that ties directly into what Lisa Monaco told us back in her October 2021 20, speech. And now we see that begin to play out in enforcement actions. And with Jardine, of course, it was a declination. And you really uh, uh, hit upon that as a key differentiator of why Jardine perhaps did get uh, the declination. But uh, in twenty in October 2021, the DOJ clearly communicated what they wanted to see around corporate culture. And now we see that play out in enforcement actions, or in this case, uh, a declination. I guess the next thing that struck me, Matt, was the re-emphasis that every company must start with a risk assessment, and then you build out your program and all its components, policies and procedures, internal controls, training incentives and disincentives, uh, third-party relationships based around your risks. And then you monitor those risks, and then you improve based upon that monitoring. Uh, so we saw that emphasized again. Any thoughts on that area? Well, I, I looked at it more, what I liked about Polite's speech was that it really kind of linked together several big chunks of corporate compliance programs, how they all fit together. You're right that it's all about risk assessment, really. If risk assessments are bad at your company, if you're not doing them very well, and we talked about risk assessments, Tom, I think just last week. But if your risk assessment process isn't good, everything else is going to wander off track. So I'm not surprised about that. Um, what really also I was struck by was how often Mr. Polite talked about testing. And I counted out. I did a search uh, function on the text, and he mentioned testing eight different times. Um, and there were some specific instances where he said, I think it was Stericycle. Uh, they wound up with a compliance monitor because they had tried to build a compliance program, but by the time of resolution, they had not entered and tested it. Um, and NatWest and Forbidi were other ones where they had not yet implemented and tested their program. And I, what I really liked about it is that it reminds us of what testing is supposed to do. And testing is supposed to give you a sense of are your controls designed properly or not? Because if they're not, then when you test them, you're going to get funky results you don't like. And now you see, okay, our program is off in this way. So now I need to remediate it. Um, the sooner you can do that, the more quickly you can get through all of this, the better. Uh, and how would you do that? By having lots of resources, because the senior management is behind a strong corporate culture and a strong culture of compliance. So, yes, compliance function will give you a big budget to be able to do and test all of the controls that you need. But like all of this, these are all set uh, pieces of a whole. And you can see how with Mr. Polite's speech there, all the pieces fit together into this whole. It goes from risk assessment to testing to control design and remediation, all of which has to be supported by a strong invest uh, tone at the top and strong executive support. And if you have all of that and you're doing really good at building back a program after a misstep, you're going to get a more favorable resolution. And last time I checked, that's what we want. And this speech from Mr. Polite really helped to understand, you know, how all of this fits together. So in addition to the risk assessment and testing, and we have our first uh, comment from Valerie Charles. Hello, Valerie. Um, the uh, I was intrigued about 
how you drew the testing, then the remarks about the monitorship. Now, uh, Kenneth Polite made it made it clear that if you are involved in an enforcement action, or did you see anything different about the roles or the selection of monitors that we hadn't heard before? I, I mean, I think we saw a bit more detail about why some companies get monitors and some companies don't. And um, it, it helps us color in the difference in thinking now in the Biden administration as opposed to the Trump administration, where pretty much like if your company had a pulse, you weren't going to get a monitor. I'm glad we've moved away from that low bar. But uh, it really is important to understand that you're going to need to be able to demonstrate an effective compliance program if you don't want to monitor. And I know we talk about that all the time. You know, you have to demonstrate an effective compliance program. What does that actually mean? There's a certain amount of, I guess we would call it self-awareness in the compliance program that you know that you have these risks here. You know you have these policies and controls here. I'm going to test them. I'm going to figure out which ones are or aren't working. I'm going to draw conclusions. I'm going to remediate the ones that aren't. Then I'm going to do it all over again. Like That's the cycle of a corporate compliance program. That's all it is to go from assessment to testing control to documenting and doing the whole thing over and over. If you can demonstrate that you understand how that cycle works and that you can make it work by showing that you're getting better and better and two cycles in, you're testing and you're getting much better results than the first time around, then I think you could make an argument that we don't need an outsider staring at our shoulder because we know what we're doing. And we have definitive proof from our testing results that sort of thing. That's when if it helps to under, it helps us all understand that's what has to happen if you want to avoid a monitor. Testing issue uh, also, I thought, was important <clears throat> because of the uh, continuous improvement uh, that uh, I see the DOJ wanting. Uh, I'm sorry, I was uh, forgot my monitor point, which was we saw two different links of monitorships. Uh, in a couple of cases from December, the um, Balfour Betty and Nat West case, we saw monitorships of three years. In Stericycle, we saw a monitorship of 18 months. And here, it seemed to me the DOJ was rewarding Stericycle for uh, not simply putting a compliance program in place, but doing some testing, although not full testing. Do you think that this could uh, help incentivize companies to to get a move on on uh, the testing phase of their remediation? I, I certainly hope so. And I would even make the counter argument. I think the counter argument is probably stronger. If you live in a world in a compliance program where you don't do testing, you're absolutely going to wind up A, in trouble, and B, the Justice Department is going to be really annoyed at you because you aren't trying to see how well your compliance actually does work in practice. You weren't doing any of that. Um, you know, if you invest in all sorts of testing and you're really on top of that and you remediate right away, does that guarantee that you're not going to get a monitor or a DPA? No, it doesn't. We don't know exactly why. But I would go back to what I said a moment ago, the opposite statement. If you never engage in any testing, are you absolutely going to wind up in a really uncomfortable place with the Justice Department? Yes, I think that's very true. So I do think that they are trying to incentivize. I don't necessarily know that we're ever going to see some perfect formula that if you do all of this, 
you will never get a monitor. Um, but I'm absolutely very confident that if you ignore the role that testing plays and you don't have the resources in place to assure that you can do testing, yeah, I think that sooner or later that decision is going to catch up with you in a very unpleasant, uncomfortable way when you have an FCPA matter. And the Justice Department, they're going to light you up over that. So let's get to the, uh, I don't want to say the money shot, but certainly uh, one of the most important parts of his speech, which was CCO certification of uh, compliance programs meeting and enforcement action requirements, whether that's a DPA, NPA, uh, could be a declination with disgorgement or perhaps uh, some other form of settlement. But CCOs now have to certify substantial compliance with the uh, requirements under the settlement agreements in addition to the CEO. Uh, I know we've hinted at this uh, before, but I think we have to take this one head on now because now it is the requirement. So you want to give your thoughts? I'm still dubious that this idea is going to work in practice, especially for smaller companies that might not necessarily have a very strong compliance function. Like who certifies if you don't have an actual chief compliance officer? Um, Are you going to have to promote your senior director of ethics and compliance to be a CCO so they can certify? Um, What if you are in say financial services where I have already seen banking regulators who have decreed as part of settlements that the chief compliance officer shall be the general counsel. So is that going to become a thing if the Justice Department then is requiring a CCO to certify, but you have dual roles within a CCO general counsel? How does that work? Um, And I don't think we have enough practical examples of this to really put it in my comfort zone. I still think there's going to be a lot of compliance officers who won't like the liability concerns that this idea conjures up. Um, I think there's probably a lot of general counsels who aren't going to like it unless they declare themselves that they're going to be the CCO as well as the general counsel, which now gets us away from the splitting legal and compliance, which is what I would always like to see. And I think that's what the Justice Department wants to see, too. Uh, and I'm still stuck on, is a CEO really going to like this? Like, what happens if the CC, CEO tells the CCO to certify and you don't want to? Are you going to tell your boss, I'm, I ain't doing that? Um, are you going to get fired? Are you going to resign over it? Do you have a whistleblower claim if you do? I like. There's so many ifs and bizarre scenarios we could spin up that I just, I'm dubious that this is going to be a long-lived, widespread practice. So I want to pick up on the last two categories, which are when the CCO and the CEO have a difference of opinion and the CCO is not ready to certify because once you put your name on that line, it's your tush. Yeah. And uh, you can now be uh, up to criminally prosecuted if something is found that was not discovered previously. And it's, I find that from the internal corporate perspective, you're putting all the responsibility on someone who does not have ultimate budget authority and they don't have the right to call upon resources the way a CEO does. But I'm also concerned that it could put the CCO in conflict with the regulators in the form of the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission if they also take this tack because uh, after certification, uh, now they go after the CCO 
And if you're going to have continued cooperation um, with the CCO community, they need to be limited from their liability, except in the three situations I think appropriately the SEC has, basically if, if you're involved in the fraud and if you're busting your hump to put a compliance program in place, you certify it. And it turns out uh, we've, we have seen companies that have discovered uh, Ericsson is the most recent uh, ongoing bribery and corruption uh, during the pendency of their DPA when, when they uh, certified there was no, uh, nothing else out there. So um, what do you do to a CCO in that situation? And do you now put them adverse to the DOJ? I mean, we could keep going. Uh, I mean, I just got warmed up as I was listing some of the potential risks here. Uh, are you going to give chief compliance officers DNO insurance uh, so that if they do wind up on the wrong side of an enforcement action, they have some sort of coverage? Because if you're not going to give it to them, I can see a whole lot of them saying, I'm not signing anything. Um, what if the CCO delegates supervisory authority of the program to somebody else, which sounds like an obscure niche sort of a thing, but this is actually something that is talked about quite a bit in the investment advisor world, where they do have higher standards for CCO liability under the Investment Companies Act, uh, where I think it was the CFPB had made a declaration that it would no longer hold uh, chief compliance officers liable for a program failure unless the CEO or the supervisory authority delegated supervision to the CCO. And you can see how we are going to spin up one set of that could come to light and cause a lot of really sticky stuff here. Um, so I am still just not comfortable with this idea because there are far too many companies that don't treat the CCO as a co-equal senior executive along with the CEO, the CFO, and the general counsel. When everybody does... The CCO was right in there in the firing line and making all the big decisions. When that's true, then I'll be more open to this certification idea. But it is not true, not for a lot of companies. So what are we doing here? And I could see this going wrong in a dozen different ways. So there's lots to unpack in this uh, speech, lots to unpack in your blog post. I hope our readers will link through, uh, if they can, to the original speech and read it because if you're a CCO and you want to find out what the DOJ is thinking, this is the speech for you. So uh, kudos for writing about it, and uh, I'll be interested to see what we come up with for next week, Matt. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance in the Weeds. We're going to link to Matt's blog post in the show notes, so I hope you will uh, check that out as well. I hope you'll join Matt and I again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds next week. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.